Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther, Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning, or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? 
Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labour pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly, as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labour was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It pours fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts, Aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood and where the slain are, there it is. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice. But I will say no more. Well, for 36 chapters, we have heard Job's laments, complaints, and his experience. And his question why is not met with an answer, but 80 questions. So how, how are we to understand this? Well, as we look at this text, first question we ask is, how, how, will, Job, how will God answer Job's inquisition and how will he address him? Is... Uh, is Job given the smackdown from above in this series of questions? Is it a rebuke or is it an enlightenment? We're going to argue uh, the latter. What 
God is doing here is he's lifting Job up, not smacking him down. And as we begin this passage, I want to argue that in three ways. What would convince us that God is acting gently here with Job rather than harshly? Well, firstly, God graciously allows space for Job's Job's laments and struggles. God has not intervened at any point in this story until now with no slapdown answers from heaven, but rather we have sat with Job for 36 chapters as he goes back and forth with his friends. So it appears that God is okay with giving us time to wrestle. He's gracious to us in that, not only with other people, but with himself. And it's striking, isn't it? Because often we can be impatient with one another in the midst of struggle. We, like Job's friends, sometimes can find it easy to express initial sympathy, can't we? But over time, we expect the wounded to be mended, or at least that others' frustrations or questions might turn into stoic acceptance. Perhaps you've felt like this, that you have inconvenienced someone else in the midst of your pain or your retreat because you feel like you're a burden with others. Well, it seems here that the God is okay with wrestling. He graciously allows space for Job's laments and struggles. And secondly, what we see here is that God gives Job an audience. The Lord spoke out of the storm. This is one of the very few occasions in the Old Testament where we see that God actually turns up. Now, he turns up in his glory, which is terrifying. But he turns up because he grants Job the dignity of an audience. He summons him to brace himself like a man. That's not so much a call to to man up, to, to face God, although humility is required. Rather, God gives him the dignity of an audience as an image bearer. And thirdly and finally, we see that God doesn't deal harshly with Job here, but he gently and sternly addresses Job's questions and complaints. See, God responds to Job's inquisition with a a barrage of his own questions. And this is not so much as it might seem initially a bullying tactic to silence or belittle Job, but rather it's, it's to be seen more like a, a teaching tool where God, the master teacher, playfully and gently, but, but sternly as well, through questions, wants to, to draw Job to a place of understanding, to see the world differently. See, not once does God condemn Job. In fact, he will go on in chapter 42 to bless him, to call him blameless. So this is not an exercise to smack Job down, but to lift him up. One theologian wrote this, God often doesn't answer the questions we voice, even as though he addresses the deeper concerns of our hearts. So in this passage today, we don't see God address the questions that Job may voice, but he does address the deeper concerns of our hearts. We will see that God cares and that in his wisdom and power, he extends kindness to Job. And it's a compelling picture of God's sovereign control and a humbling and satisfying sense of his care. 
We're going to move into the text quickly just to to see the way in which God does this through his series of questions. See, as we move through the text, we we see uh, in the last 36 chapters, Job and his friends engaging the question of God's, God's justice, the suffering that Job is experiencing. Well, why is he experiencing it? We saw that his friends championed God's justice through a callous cause and effect understanding. To them, Job is, is justly suffering because he's done something. Perhaps he's sinned, and they're calling him to repentance. His suffering is a result of something. Whereas Job has, has questioned God's justice because he feels like he hasn't done that at all. He hasn't sinned, and so he can't understand why he's experiencing suffering at the moment. So how does God address these questions that he has? Well, God addresses it with his questions, and his questions focus around the natural world, both the natural world, physical world, but also the animal world. In Job chapter 10, Job laments his situation, and and he brings his wrestling questions to God, and he does so by, by questioning God's governing government of the universe. As Job looks at the natural world, he sees, he sees chaos. It's as if God has done something wrong. And so he turns on the Creator and asks him, does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands? Your hands have shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? As Job looks at the world, he sees it as a cruel place. Job asks, how could the God who makes things good then disown them and despise it? But what we see in God's response is a different perspective. It is to this that God replies out of the storm, seeking to direct his pupil to a broader perspective. His reply reflects on the natural and the animal world. And we'll focus quickly just on on the natural world that we see. See, God begins in his questions by describing his his government of the natural world. See, Job has only bad things to say about creation, but, but God does not. He playfully talks about the world that he has made. And he does so in language which is familiar to the times, so perhaps for us, speaking about the world in terms of of architecture and creation by his voice and the poetic ways he does it might seem strange, but at that time in Job's world, these were the language and terminology familiar to speak of creation and the God who made it behind it. God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? God in his questions is saying that he is responsible for creation and it's good. And what's striking in this reading as we go through is that even the fiercer part of creation, those pockets of chaos in our world, actually God describes as good. You'll see in verses 8 to 11 when it's speaking about the seas. Seas in the Old Testament are places of of chaos. 
and Job has felt like chaos has, has run free, yet here God speaks about his sovereign control over even those chaotic spaces. The image here in verses 8 to 11 is, is of the sea like, like an infant. God is treating the sea like a, a baby to be changed or, or giving the raging sea a cuddle. If you look in verse 9, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. Job sees chaos in these things. But God is kinder and more gentle with creation than Job has been. He cares even for the chaotic sea, which resists and rebels. We could say that evil, as symbolised by the seas here, is no more a threat to God than a defiant toddler. God is in control of this world, and it's good. And the list of lessons continues here from the natural world in verses 12 to 15, each demonstrating God's God's wisdom and his power over creation. You see the light in the dawn in verses 12 to 15. The light turned on like a switch or the wicked shaken from the world. The new day is also pictured as that moment where darkness will cease. And so there's a picture that God will intervene and reverse the evil in this world. Then he speaks about the deep recesses of creation, the depths the gates of, of death have been opened to you. Have they been opened to you? Quick, uh, verse 17. It's all these places that the human eyes never get to see. God asks, were you there when I created these things? Do you know these spaces? These regions are beyond our knowledge, but they're not beyond the knowledge and the power and the wisdom of God. Then he goes on to include the storehouses for snow and hail, where he stores or sends and withhold rain and dew. All these places, God asks, Job, do you, do you know where these are? Do you have access to them? Can you withhold them or can you give them? Can you put them here or can you put them there? And the idea behind that is that God in his wisdom and power governs our world in ways that Job does not understand and nor do we. See, Job has questions God's ability to carry out justice in the affairs of earth. But God responds by getting him to see from a different perspective. God continues. He asks him where he was when he governs the stars or sets the constellations in place. See, God doesn't often answer the, the questions that we might voice, but here God addresses the deeper concerns of our hearts. He's trying to show sternly but gently, in a playful manner, his wisdom, power and care over the created world. And this is to give Job perspective. See, if God, in his wisdom and his power, is able to exercise control and care for his creation... Or can he not be trusted with the events of Job's life? Can he not be trusted with the events of our lives? But he continues his picture with a tour of creation, but, but he broadens it out, not just to the natural world, but also to the animal kingdom. In chapter 39, we get similar reflections. And you'll notice here as you go through this list that it highlights animals, but the thing that 
aligns them all together is they're not domestic animals. Drawn out are the mountain goats, the wild donkeys, the wild oxen, the ostrich. For Job's consideration, these undomesticated animals show us that, well, we can't control these, but God can. He even, he even feeds those that seek prey in others, like lions. We cannot hold God, therefore, to our house rules. God is intimately involved in the details of these animals' lives in his wisdom, care and provision. He provides sustenance for his creation in, in, in places beyond the eyes of men, in the wild places. So God celebrates his creation, even those seeming violent and ruthless and fierce creatures that he has created. It shows us that God sustains a world that is good even when there are pockets of brokenness. God is intimately involved in the sustenance of his creation. So God's response does not answer Job's inquisition. But what he does here, gently questioning Job, is to give him eyes to look up and to see a bigger picture than the deep pain that he is experiencing. See, Job in his deep suffering exclaims why, and we've seen that that's the right question to ask. And God welcomes our complaints and our laments and our questions. But God doesn't here answer the questions that Job voices. Rather, he seeks to address the deeper concerns of his heart. See, as you read through the book of Job, what is striking is that Job ultimately feels abandoned by God. In fact, Job has, has used the language of wild animals to explain this feeling of abandonment throughout the book. In chapter 6, he compares his discontent to the braying of a wild donkey. In chapter 24, he, he describes the mistreated Paul as wild donkeys in the desert. In chapter 30, he speaks of his isolation in terms of animals that haunt abandoned cities. Uh, I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. So Job uses this language of wild animals to describe his abandonment, but God uses this language to describe his wisdom, his power and his care for Job so that he would gain perspective. Again, so that he might see that he can be trusted with the events of Job's life. And so that we might see that we can entrust God with the events of our lives also. Well, how does Job respond? Well, we read in chapter 40, he says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. We see that Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. As Job hears of God's wisdom, his power, and his care, he's humbled. He humbles himself. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? We'll go on to see in the second speech that God continues to speak of his care. And we'll see Job's response. But here he falls silent. He puts his hand over his mouth. It's the initial picture of humility that will be painted further next week. 
Well, how, how will this help us as we conclude in the midst of our suffering? I don't know about you, but in the midst of your existential struggle, if someone came to you and said, hey, look at the emu, I don't know whether you think that might cut it. So how, how does this help us? Well, well God has, has patiently and gently, in the language familiar to that world, sought to, to give Job the perspective of God's wisdom, his power and, and his care. Job has felt abandoned. And in his questions of why, well, God doesn't give him a direct answer, but he does lift his eyes to see the God of wisdom, power and care over creation is the God who is wise and who is powerful and who cares for him. So God doesn't answer because, but rather says, here I am in his wisdom, power and care. And so Job's suffering and God's response paint a picture of a path for us in the midst of our own suffering. Theologian Kelly Capick in his beautiful book, Embodied Hope, writes this, Our pain may seem to overshadow the light of God's presence, but in the honest cries of our lament and grief, we may, like Job, hear something beyond the answer to our questions. We might hear and know the presence of the God who not only is here, but who has borne for us the weight of all that is broken, who absorbed not only our sin, but also the chaos of disease and death in all its forms, it is in our cries that we can learn that this God comes. See, God answers Job ultimately, not by lecturing him. No, God will ultimately answer Job's questions by becoming Job's substitute. As we continue to, to read the scriptures, we know that God will enter the human predicament and he who is spirit will take on flesh and become fully human. He will not only see physical pain everywhere, but he will experience it deeply himself and he will defeat sin and all the chaos it brings, both in the human heart and in our relationships. The Son of God comes as God's great saviour to Job's deepest questions and concerns. So you may be here today overwhelmed in pain. You may feel abandoned. You may not see purpose behind it. You may ask why. Well, like Joe, we may not get an answer to that question. But know that God in Christ meets you in your pain and says, I am here. And he is wise, and he is powerful, and he is caring, and he's demonstrated us that in Christ. Well, how can we apply some of these things that we've been looking at today? Just a few thoughts to close. Firstly, let's make space for wrestling in suffering. As we've seen through the book of Job, there is no quick fix to pain. In this beautiful, gentle picture, God allows space for Job to wrestle in suffering. So as a community, let's make space for one another in suffering also. It's called to patient presence with one another. To those who may patiently walk lovingly 
meeting physical needs, praying with one another, reminding each other of God's control and his care. Let's be those who minister these blessings to each other patiently and in committed ways. So perhaps there is someone this week you can communicate patient care to. Secondly, let's let creation lift our eyes to see God's goodness and his care. As you look at the natural world, let it remind you of God's wisdom, his power and his care. Jesus calls us to do a similar thing. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then these beautiful words, are you not more valuable than they? Let's let creation lift our eyes to see God's wisdom, his power, and his care. Thirdly, let's meditate on the story of Job. As we've seen, God's speeches, they don't address Job's questions in the way that he may have wanted them. But in his response and through his questions, he gives insight into something beyond his questions. A compelling picture of his kindness and control. A humbling yet satisfying sense of his care so that we are not abandoned. And so we would do well to, to meditate on these reflections in the book of Job. And perhaps we're not in a season of suffering, but if we meditate on them now, then in times of suffering we'll be reminded of them. It's like rehearsing scales on a piano. We do that so that it comes naturally and by instinct in seasons of suffering. So that in future moments of suffering they might come instinctively to us and to help us bear up under the suffering that we might be experiencing. And finally, let us meditate on Job's and ours, our substitute the Lord Jesus. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord so that God would lift us up. Let us meditate on the God who, in his love, entered our world, took on human flesh, died for us so that we might be restored to him. The Son of God comes as God's great answer to Job's deepest pain, questions, and concerns. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words, your words, and in the inadequate way in which we can seek to grasp the truths behind it, we pray that even today as we've reflected on it, that you, by your Spirit, might move us to a sense of awe about who you are, your wisdom, your power, but also your care. And Lord, for those of us who might be feeling pain at the moment and abandonment, may those truths be deeply applied to us. We thank you for your love of us, we thank you, uh, thank you for your commitment to us in the person of your Son, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you might help us to meditate on him and his work for us and the future secured for us and help us to persevere in the midst of trials.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.